This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. This podcast is brought to you by Greystone Theological Institute. Faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania and an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I'm here with my uh, long-standing friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. And we are privileged today to have a returning guest. Uh, Some of you may remember that a couple of years ago, we interviewed Father Thomas Wainandi on the first volume in his projected uh, massive and ambitious New Testament theology, the first volume entitled Jesus Becoming Jesus, which was looking at the Christology of the Synoptic Gospels, specifically relative to the narrative of the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, was doing an interesting thing, certainly from a a Protestant or evangelical perspective, and that was uh, weaving together the narratives of the New Testament with classical theism. Many of you may be familiar with Father Wayne Andy's work, uh, Does God Change? And a companion volume, Does God Suffer? In fact, 
it's probably not an exaggeration to say that the great revival in classical theism, which has been taking place in conservative Protestantism in America and beyond over the last five or 10 years, owes an awful lot to the pioneering work of retrieval uh, in which uh, Father Wayne has been engaged. And today we want to speak to him about the second volume in his New Testament theology, again entitled Jesus Becoming Jesus, but this is the first of, of two projected volumes on the Gospel of John. This volume is dealing specifically with what is known by scholars as the Book of Signs, uh, John chapter 1 through the end of chapter 12, the, the raising of Lazarus and then the aftermath of the raising of Lazarus. And so we want to, to talk to uh, Father Tom today about this book and hopefully uh, offer some insights and some pointers to those of you listening as to how to integrate or how to think about that relationship between the word proclaimed, the narrative of the gospel, and the great, glorious, eternal truths about God himself. So, Father Tom, it's a great pleasure to have you back on the program. Well, it's a great pleasure and honor to be back on the program. I'm so pleased uh, uh, to be here with you uh, today. So it's uh, it's good, and thank you for that very kind uh, introduction. That was, mm -hmm. that was a very good, very nice. Well, I have to say, I've read now both of the volumes in in the Jesus Becoming Jesus series. I thoroughly enjoyed the first. The second, I think, is is even more powerful and pungent in many ways. And one of the things that's uh, th that I'm interested in at the moment, I've been reflecting on a lot. I I was challenged by an Orthodox priest uh, in the last year as to why Protestants so rarely think about or preach upon the Transfiguration. And of course, the transfiguration is mentioned in each of the synoptic gospels, but isn't mentioned in the gospel of John. Yet you make this intriguing point. You say uh, near the start that the gospel of John is all about the transfiguration. You don't need the specific event because the gospel itself is saturated with the, the, the theology that the transfiguration presents to us. I wonder if you could start by perhaps unpacking that, that grand theme in the gospel of John for us. All right. Well, I, I think, first of all, um, I came early on to the notion that uh, John is, in a way, writing his own theological interpretation of the one gospel tradition that is found in a threefold manner within the synoptics. And so he, he is looking at this one gospel tradition, whether he was acquainted with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I, I, I don't want to get into. Uh, but he wanted to write a theological interpretation of, of the kerygma that was being preached in the apostolic age. Um, and so in doing that, it wasn't that he did not know about the transfiguration. He obviously did. But in writing a theological interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels, one of the things he wanted to do was to show that the entire life of Jesus, from, from the, the moment of the incarnation and on, and even before that in the prologue with creation, that what we see throughout is the glory of Jesus, the transfigured glory of Jesus coming through his flesh, his sarks. It's in the weakness of Jesus's flesh that we actually see the glory of the Son of God. You know, in the prologue, uh, John states, you know, we've seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son. 
And that glory is manifested throughout the whole of John's gospel. Now, we see it, uh, and John accentuates it uh, very much in his miracles. The miracles are expressions, actions that uh, manifest the glory of the Son of God. And, you know, at the end of the wedding feast, this Cana, the says the disciples became to believe. And this was the first time where where Jesus uh, revealed his glory as the Son of God. But all of the miracles are, are revelations of the glory of, this, of Jesus being the Father's Son. And of course, we, we have throughout the theme of, of John's gospel, the whole notion of, of the hour. Uh, again, the hour began with a miracle at Cana, the changing of water into wine. And from that hour on, the hour commences, and it keeps progressing throughout the whole of the gospel. And John, you know, every once in a while, you know, the, the hour is getting nearer and nearer. Of course, the hour is the hour of Jesus's death. And of course, again, that is the supreme hour of glory. Again, in the weakness of sinful flesh, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, we see the glory of the only begotten Son uh, in that hour, because in that hour, he is finishing, he's completing his Father's work. Uh, and so we see uh, in, a, in a manner that's very ironic, you wouldn't think the cross would be the hour of Jesus's glory, but Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son in his high priestly prayer. And, and the prayer, the hour of glory, the hour in which the Father glorifies the Son, is the very hour in which Jesus, the great high priest and, and the holy victim, offers himself as the one true sacrifice that reconciles human beings back to the Father. And, and, and the fact that that uh, hour of Jesus' crucifixion and death was efficacious is manifested by the Father raising him gloriously from the dead. Uh, the Father shows his approval, his acceptance of what his son has done in finishing his work by raising him gloriously from the dead so that Jesus now is the risen Lord of, of glory. And so the, the whole incarnation beginning you know, in the prologue all the way to the end, and we have seen, we have seen, we've constantly seen the glory of the only begotten son. You know, as my Baptist friends say, that will preach. Yeah. That will preach. And one of the things that I've so appreciated about uh, the first volume and now the second volume in this um, work is, and Carl and I were talking about this earlier this morning, is that uh, you do what so many of the theologians from the first four or five centuries of the church did, which is you don't separate theology from doxology. Um, theology serves doxology. And your book models that. And I, as I was flipping through just the section on on the prologue again uh, this morning, um, the section on the prologue of John in your book is just all marked up and highlighted in my book because I found so much that was helpful. And I, I wonder, uh, one of the questions I get uh, from church members periodically when the gospel of John comes up is uh, to help them understand uh, the significance of, of Jesus being designated as the Logos or the word. And um, one of the things I've heard in the past, and you address this in the book, is that, well, this was a common Greek idea at the time, the Logos being sort of uh, the, the be all and end all the explanation of, of all things, the Logos. And that's certainly true. Um, and oftentimes I've heard that explained. John is, is, is intentionally using this, this Greek idea to try to help them understand the significance of Jesus. What's your thoughts on that? And how would you respond to that? 
Well, I think, you know, as I think, as I mentioned in the book, that obviously within Greek philosophical thought, the word logos word was used as, you know, God, the logos was sort of the ordering principle for ordering the cosmos. The logos um, uh, was inherent within human beings that gave them access to knowledge of God. Now, that all may be true, but I think John, while maybe knowing all of that, he places the Logos with very much within uh, a biblical context that uh, God, throughout the whole of the Old Testament, spoke his word. Uh, and that word was a living word. It brought about effects. When God spoke his word, it brought about salvific ex- effects. The prophets spoke his word. So God, the word became sort of the 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 way God communicated to his creation, to his people in Israel. But the word was not just the spoken word. It was, a, it, it was also, you know, words and actions. Uh, you know, he spoke his word and the Red Sea divided. Uh, the word was a powerful word that affected, in a sense, what it spoke. Uh, and the same way with wisdom, the literature, you know, is, is, is similar, that the word embodies the very wisdom of God. Uh, and so uh, the, 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 John, I think, plays very much upon uh, the Old Testament understanding. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, the word was not seen as a, in a sense, a person distinct, you know, from the Father or for God. But the word embodied in, in, in very much a way. Uh, God's personality, it, it, it became personified. Wisdom became personified. Uh, and so um, John, when he gets to his prologue, uh, and in light of his you know, meditation, contemplation of the incarnation, he sees the word now as, as being the word that was with God that from, from all eternity and was God. Uh, and that that word that was always with God and through whom God created all things, uh, that word now became flesh. Uh, and so the, that word, in a sense, for John, embodied the whole truth of who God is. And when put within the framework of father-son, the son is the perfect image of the father because he embodies the perfect truth of the father. He, he's the perfect word of the father. And so... Be, being the perfect word of the Father, he is the perfect image of the Father, and so the perfect Son of the Father, who images the Father perfect, perfectly. And so that word then now becomes a who, a real who, a real person, identifiable who that has an identity as the Son of God. And so you would say that, that John's use of the word uh, owes far more to do with a Jewish foundation than an appeal to Greek philosophy in that I case. Do. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. One of the reasons I think this is true is because, um, you know, in, in the volume on John, uh, I have this theory that John's audience, primary audience, is the non-believing Jews of his time. You know, John is often, the Gospel of John is often thought to be anti-Semitic. 
anti-Jewish because the Jews come out looking very bad in a sense of John's gospel in a way. Yeah. But 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 I think it's the exactly opposite. Uh, He is actually writing to the Jews, uh, showing them why they should believe that Jesus is truly the Father's Son. And in order to do that, he, you know, he, he places it so often within uh, context of the previous Old Testament uh, revelation. Uh, it's interesting in, in the chapters where Jesus engages with uh, contentious arguments or disputes with the Jewish uh, rabbis and, and Pharisees and scribes, he allows them to express their arguments. And I'm sure those are the very arguments they have against believing that Jesus is truly the Messiah, the Son of God, the expected one. Uh, But in doing that, then uh, John allows Jesus to respond to all these objections. Uh, And again, Jesus often responds by using Old Testament images. You know, when I am lifted up, as Moses lifted up, the serpent and desert. So when I am lifted up, then you will know that I am He. I am Yahweh. Uh, and and so it's it's. Uh, I think Jesus, you know, John's writing the gospel for the for the Jews. All yeah. all the titles that Jesus had are ultimately Jewish titles. Uh, it's interesting, you know, in the first opening chapters after the prologue. Uh, you know, John the Baptist bears witness that the one upon whom the Spirit comes, he will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb of God is an Old Testament image. In a sense, it's kind of fun, interesting, uh, you know, God having a Lamb, but the Lamb of God is Jesus, and he's going to be the new Passover Lamb of the new covenant. Uh, and, and because of this, uh, John bears testimony that he truly is the Son of God. And and then following upon that, when Jesus gathers his disciples together and calls them, uh, they all declare in some way who Jesus is by using Old Testament um, images again or understanding, uh, saying we found the Messiah uh, or we found the one who Moses spoke, the prophet that Moses spoke of. Uh, Of course, Nathaniel says, uh, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. You know, the, um, all of this would resonate with a Jewish audience. I think John is very much disturbed by the fact that it's the Jews who are rejecting Jesus, and he wants to win them over. Yeah, I found that, uh, well, there were two things that I that struck me particularly about the book. One of them was that, that they, particularly in our racially charged moments at the moment in North America, uh, the brilliant way that I think you demonstrated that the burden of John's gospel is not anti-Jewish, as is so often uh, read just off the surface of the text, but actually John's burden is precisely for his fellow Jewish people. I thought that was great. Uh, the other thing, again, touching on, on, on your explanation of that, I was struck again that it's only when you have a grasp of the transcendence of the Old Testament God that the New Testament becomes so glorious. And I found this in class, Teaching Doctrine of God at Grove City College, pressing on, particularly on evangelical students who 
whose default is typically to thank God for the things he's done for them, which of course is a, a right and a proper thing to do. But I've, I've taken some of the great patristic writings and some of the patristic prayers where, of course, God is not just thanked for what he's done for his people, he's praised for who he is in himself. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, it, it's almost like watching scales fall from some of the students' eyes when they realize, oh yes, God is so much greater than, than my personal salvation, as great and wonderful as that is. God himself is, is great in himself. And I thought that, you know, I came away from the book thinking, wow, the, the transcendent God becomes flesh. That's, that's amazing. And, of course, one of the things that you do in that, Father Tom, is, uh, uh, and I was fascinated by this, was you, you really see the book of signs, every sign is pointing towards the raising of Lazarus. You know, Lazarus becomes, after Jesus, in some ways, Lazarus is the key dramatic figure, even though he only features relatively late in the Book of Signs. I wonder if you could just give us a quick synopsis as, as to why you think the raising of Lazarus is the real key to, to understanding those first 11, 12 chapters of the Book of John. You have, yes, you have to put the raising of Lazarus not only in the context of the other miracles. The raising of Lazarus is the seventh and final miracle that John narrates. Uh, and But you have to put the raising of Lazarus also within the context of the I am sayings. Jesus proclaims, I am bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. And he says, I am the resurrection of the life. Then later on, outside the book of signs, he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now, when Jesus said these things, in one sense, he was the bread of life. He was the light of the world. He was the good shepherd. But those I am saints only can take on the fullness of what they mean, the fullness of, of the reality of which they speak if Jesus is risen, it's only if Jesus, and the miracle of raising of Lazarus is the sign, Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. And the raising of the life is, is, is the sign. Lazarus, in a sense, becomes a sacramental sign of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Uh, and, of course, we know he will be the, he comes to be the resurrection of life because the Father raises him from the dead. But it's only when Jesus himself is raised from the dead that he becomes the resurrection of the life. And so only in the being, in being risen it, does he become the bread of life. Bread will not have life <laughs> if, if it's not the risen body and blood of Jesus. I am the bread of life. He eats my body and drinks my blood. He eats this bread will live forever. But it's only the living bread, because the living bread is the risen Jesus. It's only the risen Jesus who's really the light of the world. It's only the risen Jesus that gives us entree into the heavenly kingdom. He's the gate that by which we enter into the presence of the Father. It's only the risen Jesus that is the shepherd, good shepherd, who shepherds us away from sin into the kingdom of God. Uh, it's only because Jesus is risen that he can be the vine in which we abide. Uh, it's the risen Jesus in which we abide. It's the risen Jesus who's the way to the Father. It's the risen Jesus who is the truth in which we come to abide in the Father. It's only the risen Jesus 
who gives us life, eternal life, divine life, that takes us into the Father. Uh, and, and so ultimately, all the seven I am saints are, are ultimately found in Jesus proclaiming that he is he who is. I, I am, ego e me. But it's in the resurrection that we see truly manifested in reality uh, that Jesus is truly he who is, Yahweh, where Jesus truly becomes Jesus. Yahweh saves. Uh, and so the resurrection is key because it's only if Jesus is the resurrection and the life of which the raising of Lazarus is the sign, do all the other I am sayings uh, take on the reality of which, of which Jesus speaks. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the conversation has gone by quickly and uh, it's, it's the sort of conversation that is so helpful to me. I, I said this to our audience um, several years ago when, when we had you on before uh, father Tom, that uh, my, my introduction really to classical theism was from primarily from your two books, one on immutability, one on impassibility. And I remember as a very young pastor reading both of those books, mainly because the titles interested me, but I was so taken by this theology of a big, robust, eternal and unchanging God. That was really, unfortunately, it was fairly new to me. I went on to find out that there's a grand tradition of this within Protestant theology. I was just unaware of it. And, um, and I've, read your stuff ever since then. And again, um, this is, I would say to my, my fellow Protestants, particularly those of you that are pastors or want to study uh, the gospel accounts uh, uh, deeper, certainly while there will be some points of disagreement, there is so much good material here. I mean, I'm a preacher, and so I'm always looking at the things I'm reading through those lenses. And I've marked up both of the volume, the first two volumes in this set already with, with reflections on, on how the people I minister to can be helped in my own preaching from the insights that are in these books. And I commend these to you, uh, to my fellow Protestants, because you will find so much material here that is both warmly devotional and warmly doxological as well. It's, it's theology the way theology ought to be written in that sense. And so, um, as Carl mentioned earlier, we, um, uh, uh, even as Protestants, we, we warmly recommend uh, Thomas Wynandy's uh, work um, as being very helpful, very much in the ancient stream of classical theism that um, uh, Protestants have, have always affirmed. And while there's going to be certain points of disagreement, there's much depth of agreement on such essential matters. And so, uh, Father Thomas Wynandy, thank you so much for joining us today. We've enjoyed the conversation. We appreciate, um, as, uh, as your Protestant neighbors, we appreciate your work very much in these areas. Well, thank you very much. Again, it was an honor being with you again. And, um, and you know, I look forward to being with you another time. It's always a joy to, to be with you. And it, again, as you said, uh, uh, we, you know, I might be a Catholic and you are Protestants, but we are our brothers in the Lord, and that that's that's a marvelous truth. Uh, we really have it. John is, is very big on on baptism. We didn't even touch on that. That's right. <laughs> oh, there's so much. You know, we didn't even get into. Uh, yeah, you know, the wedding feast at Cana. There's so much uh, material in there that is that is so worthy of reflection, and that and you've prompted thoughts 
um, that I hadn't had before. And, and we were and, chatting uh, in the car on the way over mm-hmm. about that section. Exactly. So, it was really, so. really wonderful stuff. And so it, yeah. to our listeners, I would say, go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you can register to win a, a copy of uh, Jesus Becoming Jesus, Volume 2. And uh, uh, you'll be uh, you'll find much wonderful, wonderful uh, cause for uh, uh, devotional thinking as you as you work your way through that. Um, If you're so inclined, you can make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that uh, they can continue to provide um, uh, good material and content like this. Again, we send our thanks to our guest today, Thomas Wynandy, and uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. University and seminary credentials are not the end, but only steps in a lifelong calling to theological wisdom. And theological wisdom is greatly needed today. Greystone Theological Institute exists to resource rigorous and effective continuing education and scholarship by hosting full and micro-course modules, study days, seminars, workshops, and other events designed for advanced theological edification and fellowship. Exploring and deploying advances in scholarship across the disciplines, Greystone sharpens skills, provokes new questions, and reconsiders old ones in the mode of confessional reformed Catholicity. Join the next course or event at Greystone in Pittsburgh or online or become a Greystone member at greystoneconnect.org today and enjoy access to the rapidly growing online library of all modules, events, and seminars for the price of a paperback. Greystone Theological Institute. Faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org for more about Greystone and greystoneconnect.org to become a member today.